Shark pots? Yeah. How could you accept the challenge? It wasn't me, it was you. I know, I know. It's okay, it's okay. He's really gonna do it! He's ready to make the jump. Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 84, Jumping the Shark. Welcome to episode 84 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and for the first episode of 2018, I have strapped on a leather jacket and a pair of water skis because I am going to be talking about a pop culture phenomenon that started as kind of a joke and eventually became part of our cultural lexicon, which is called Jumping the Shark. And over the course of this episode, I'll be taking a look at several categories of shark jumping, as well as shining a spotlight on television episodes that I've watched that really fit those examples. But in case you're wondering, let me tell you what jumping the shark is and where it comes from. Whereas I usually deal with pop culture on this site in this podcast that's from the 80s or 90s, Jumping the Shark came to prominence in the early 2000s, and is basically defined as the moment when you realize a television series has crossed some sort of event horizon, and it's now on the decline. This could be for a number of reasons, stemming from the show adding new characters, storylines repeating themselves or dragging on endlessly, or the showrunners and network pulling out whatever they can in order to convince the audience to keep watching. The term itself is named after a moment that you heard at the very top of the show, the September 20th, 1977 episode of Happy Days, entitled Hollywood Part 3, where Henry Winkler's Fonzie literally jumps a shark while on water skis and, of course, while wearing his leather jacket. It's a moment where the show starts to really overemphasize Fonzie and turn him into some sort of superhero, as opposed to keeping him as the secondary character to Richie Cunningham, who is played by Ron Howard. 
Howard would actually stay on through season seven and then leave the show. Richie was headed for the army while Howard went on to a directing career, but not before appearing in more American graffiti. Howard, when he appeared on Mark Maron's WTF podcast, had an amusing anecdote about the first time his co-star Donnie Most, who played Ralph Mouth, saw the episode's script saying, quote, Donnie's reading it and he kind of looks down and he says, what do you think of the script? And I shrugged and I said, people like the show. It's hard to argue with being number one. And he looked up and said, he's jumping a shark now? That was the first time I saw that phrase bracketed before it was even done. So you got to give props to Donnie Most. But Most didn't originate the phrase as we know it in popular culture. That honor goes to John Hine and Sean Connolly, who back in 1985 were roommates at the University of Michigan. Connolly used, had used the phrase to note, as, as Heim later put it, a defining moment when you know from now on it's all downhill. It will never be the same. Hein would, never, would later create a website in 1997 called Jump the Shark, and then would also write a couple of books as well as make a number of media appearances in the early 2000s. The site is no longer active, but if you're looking for examples of how shows jump the shark in various ways, I recommend heading over to TV Tropes, uh, the wiki, which itself has a Jump the Shark page among many, many, many other pages that will fill your life with endless hours of fun. Serious, tvtropes.org is one of the best time killers, time wasters, just rabbit holes to fall down. I absolutely love just going on that site and looking up stuff, even if some of it's just kind of like, it's kind of fun to argue with some of their ideas and things. But you go on there, they have a Jump the Shark category. And um, it's it's filled with a lot of things that you would have seen in the old Jump the Shark stuff. And I'm, I'm sure if you wanted to discuss like where TV shows turned, I'm sure there are a number of places on the internet where you can do that. In fact, uh, request to join the uh, Two True Freaks Cantina, which is one of the side discussion groups for the Two True Freaks podcast network, where we discuss a lot of just random sci-fi stuff it's kind of a catch-all uh, thing kind of grew out of the are missing the old forums go on there post the shark jumping related question i'm sure you'll get at least a few replies in 2000 though going back to 2000 i was working at this dot com and marketing so basically wasn't doing anything with my days and i heard about this website and i remember where i heard it but i do remember hearing about it and i began reading it and i wish i could tell you you know, who I heard it from or whatever, but it was my early 20s. It were fuzzy memories. I just remember that my time as a marketing assistant was spent screwing around the internet because there wasn't much to do with the job, and I got laid off six months later. I wonder why. Anyway, actually, if you think about it, that's kind of my history with office jobs before I became a teacher. Like, I've, I've made less money than I did when I was not working as a teacher, but at the same time, I've just the volume of work I've had to do is, uh, 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 it's an, yeah. Anyway, thankfully in the early 2000s, I spent a lot of time screwing around the internet at various places where I worked. The site itself, jumptheshark.com, was pretty rudimentary. I mean, it was launched in 1997, so it was using like, you know, um, Times New Roman font, basic graphics, a frames layout, early forms of GIFs or GIF. We can argue that pronunciation later. You can actually find it 
um, captured by the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive, and they have actually quite a number of captures. So I, I went through a number of them in order to research the show, uh, and and it is fun to go back and just to see. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So when you click the show, though, I'll talk about how the thing was laid out. You go to the main page of jumptheshark.com, and there were basic categories for you there to click through. In other words, things that were kind of like common reasons shows that were uh, were jump shows would jump the shark. And under each of those categories were a list of shows. But you could go to an individual television show, so like Happy Days or Friends or Seinfeld or The Simpsons, or etc. Um, you click the show, you get the rundown of all the reasons that website visitors had given for the shows jumping the shark, including, quote, never jumped. Um, in other words, the show was, was not perfect, but it was impervious to shark jumping. It was good from beginning to end. And this was a, and this also had a tally of the number of votes this got because there'd be a lot of like you know one or two or somebody would post a reason to be like one person said this and one person said this but then there were like you know never jumped eighty five people or they did it they had a baby a hundred people or whatever and below this record here would just be comments anonymous comments from site visitors. Not much of the site was something that changed my life. There wasn't something that stuck with me in a profound way, I have to confess. It was just one of those work time rabbit holes you'd spend hours on because there were 2,000 shows listed. I mean, they listed the syndicated television show T&T. If that's not a deep dive, I don't know what is. And, and there were a ton of reasons why people would say... Uh, shows jumped the shark for various reasons, although many of those specific reasons fell under several categories. And some of the comments, honestly, were like absolute uh, gems. For instance, on, on California Dreams, this show jumped the shark for from day one. What kind of high school kids get together and start a soft rock band? How do you respond to that in defense of the show? I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, I have to say, the one thing I remember, is one of the times you wanted to read the comments on something, because usually I'm like, don't read the comments on anything. But I have to say, like, so I, I went through a bunch of shows when I was looking over this, and um, one of the shows that I remember very, very vividly was the show Davy and Goliath. And this is a page that I remember, I, I don't know why, but I just remember the comments, so I went back and looked at it. And if, if you don't remember this show... It was animated. It was an animated show in the style of, of Gumby, but it was Christian-themed, and it usually aired, I think it usually aired on, like, Sunday morning, so, like, either right before or right after church, uh, if you were a churchgoer. And Davy was a boy, and Goliath was his dog, and uh, they learned lessons about, I don't know, they had something to do with the Bible, I guess. I don't know, it was a religious show, it probably did. Anyway, I think I saw a few dozen episodes when I was little, and, and I was waiting to go to Sunday school or, or whatever it is. And I'll post a link to the page itself via the Wayback Machine on the show notes because the fact that people remembered enough about the show to evaluate when it jumped the shark is really a feat of humanity in itself, if you think about it. But what's found on the page in terms of comments is really fun and kind of gold. I mean, we have reasons among of which are it got religion hardy har the opening letters turn to slime and the jickets didn't become a gang i don't know what a jicket is i don't know a gang and there's nothing of an explanation other than from a comment from a user that says this jumped the shark when the jickets didn't become a full-fledged street gang 
I didn't realize that Davy and Goliath was supposed to be treat, treating us to the dangers of gangs and gang-related activity back in, like, I don't know, with the 1960s or whatever the heck they were creating these things, but there you go. Other comments include, even when I was young, I knew not to accept the preachy morality of a cartoon dog and the mischievous kid he follows around. The best they think they could have done for this show was to borrow Sluggo from Mr. Bill and have him torture the hell out of Davy and that damn preachy dog. Why do children's religious programming have to have such crappy production values? I watched this show as a Sunday morning kickoff until Davy's grandma kicked the bucket. It traumatized me and made me realize that the Christian God doesn't care who he pisses on, especially stupid claymation kids with preachy talking dogs. Hands down the best show about clay Protestants ever made. What's the deal with Sally's hair? Just a pure yellow clump. I don't know, Davy. But Davy, that's Mrs. Turner's money. But Davy, what will Dad say? What will God say? Wasn't Davy's voice speedy Alka-Seltzer? This show jumped twice. The first time was when Sally, who grew up to become Sandy Duncan, shamelessly cashed in on her fame became a spokes thing for the marble cigarette as it run during the show's commercial break. The second time was when special guest stars Gumby and Pokey joined Davy and Goliath for a special Clay Rights episode that featured a march on Washington. The anti-Clay crew from Thunderbirds Argo was called in to blast the Clay folk into next week, but the international rescue team was instead splintered by Goliath's rousing, we shall not be killed speech. Okay, that is gold. The show was destined to jump the shark the day it hit the airwaves. When I was a kid, it aired on TV on Sunday mornings. My brother and sister and I watched it because it was the only thing on that was remotely interesting to kids. The other channels had the usual Sunday morning public information crap, like a bunch of journalists and politicians sitting around and talking about the latest municipal bond sale or recent events in Malaysia. While all three of us kids craved cartoons on Sunday morning, we lived in the days before cable when you only had five stations. So we watched Davy and Goliath, reluctantly. The plots were vapid, the claymation sucked, and even in the 1970s the clothes and hairstyles were out of date. It was not realistic either. If Davy did something like break a window, his father would put down his newspaper, sit him on his lap, hold him close, and tell him why his actions transgressed against the will of God. In my house, my dad would put down his beer, take off his belt, expose my ass cheeks, and lay me over his knees so that he could even more easily flog my ass. And whereas Davy's dad would talk in these loving, reassuring tones while he punished his son, quote, in quotes, my dad spewed out four-letter Anglo-Saxon monosyllables that most Christian denominations discourage. I loved this show as a kid, but a jump when the opening went from letters breaking into a light snowfall into becoming a slime-like jet that landed on the ground and became the symbol for the Lutheran Church. Other than that, I still get a warm feeling in my heart when I see reruns and wish the show were still around for my seven-year-old to watch. Now, there were plenty of positive comments about Davy and Goliath on the site, but of course I do love pointing out the snarkier ones because, well, it's funny. And because, well... And the internet's been horrible, always been horrible. Although, honestly, like some of the snarky stuff is really, really fun. And, you know, we're in an age where every time we turn around, people are 
people like are trying to outdo each other in terms of snarky comments or hating on something because they devolve into that sort of 11, 12-year-old, 13-year-old mind of, oh, hating on this makes me cool. And then, of course, you have the offshoot of that, of the sexist, racist, homophobic comments that are just like completely uncalled for. But there is something to say about some just being able to take the piss out of something every once in a while, to borrow a phrase from Andrew Leyland. You know, the, the fact that you can take a show like Davy and Goliath, which was this wholesome Sunday morning show, and come up with a fake comment about a Clay Wrights episode that featured a march on Washington and we shall not be killed. I mean, that is actually pretty funny. And just some of the other things, like, you know, we all have silly things to say about something and in some cases we're doing it out of just like oh my god i can't believe this is just you know this sort of maybe there's a little hatred in there but at the same time a lot of times we do it just out of for the fun of it and because like if you look at this you might actually have some decent memories of it but at the same time you're just like oh my god i can't believe i watched that and you know that's the fun of a shite like Jump the Shark. You get to really just kind of pinpoint moments like that. In some cases, the show, the site would go overboard with it, or the users on the site would go overboard with it. But in other cases, it was pretty spot on. Um, I will say, though, that there was one other comment that I looked on, not on Davy and Goliath, but it was about um, that 70s show. And that 70s show was on, that 70s show was probably on for way longer than it had to be. It ran on Fox for, what, like the better part of a decade. Um, but there's an episode of that 70s show where Fez had a fantasy wherein he jumps the shark, just like Fonzie. And then he and Hyde have a conversation about how they realized it was a terrible moment and the show was kind of terrible after that. And this is right around the high, the high point of the popularity of the phrase, so it's very possible that jumping the shark, jump the shark with Fez jumping the shark... It's a lot of sharks. That's like Jaws the Revenge level sharkiness. I'm going to take a break. And after I get back from this break, I'm going to look at examples from seven jump the shark categories. Stick around. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf Editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. And we're back. What I'm going to do here is go through seven different common reasons that, according to the old Jump the Shark website, were signs that a show had gone on the decline. There, of course, were a number of very specific reasons given for a particular show's decline, but these are so common that they now 
they're becoming tropes, and many, many shows find themselves, well, here. First up is, quote, New Kid in Town. And I should say that I'm actually using the designations that were on the old Jump the Shark website. So there might be other ways of expressing the say on TV tropes. Like this would honestly be called, say, like a Cousin Oliver. But um, but they refer to it as the new kid in town. And this is when a younger new character is added to a show in an effort to punch up the show and get better ratings because maybe it's in its sixth or seventh season. I don't know if it ever really works. Uh, this tends to happen a lot on sitcoms and tended to happen a lot on sitcoms in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the most obvious example is Cousin Oliver. I'd say Scrappy-Doo is another example, but in, case, in the case of Scrappy-Doo, Scooby-Doo's a... It's, Scooby-Doo's like a franchise, and there are so many iterations that I think you can ignore huge swaths of it and kind of be fine. With the Brady Bunch... Seeing the new kid and cousin Oliver, you see that clearly the producers were trying to hang on to something, especially since the kids were getting older and even Cindy and Bobby were starting to evolve beyond cute. Plus, I don't think I was paying any real attention to cousin Oliver by the time I saw his Brady Bunch episodes. I was too busy staring at Marsha. But really, um, Cousin Oliver is the is the kind of gold standard for this because people really do say that this is like these are the episodes they're unwatchable. He ruined the Brady Bunch, which I mean that's a little bit of a stretch. It's the freaking Brady Bunch. But those of us who kind of watched it in like rerun perpetuity because it was just always on. It was the Saved by the Bell of its day. Um do kind of understand that the the lack of quality in some of those Cousin Oliver episodes from the last part of the the show's run. But if I'm talking about stuff that I remember seeing firsthand or or things that are a little more contemporary to my childhood and my formative years, uh, you've got Olivia on The Cosby Show, who is played by um, Raven Simone, Elmo, the demon red thing that ruins Sesame Street, Tori on Saved by the Bell, which is one of the rare times such a move was done with someone who wasn't a child. Um, and that was, and Tori might get a pass too, because as I covered way back a couple of years ago, I, oh God, I think it was like five years ago at this point, when I did an episode on Saved by the Bell, Tori was introduced because the show had been popular and was really popular, but they'd filmed the graduation episode already, and Tiffany Thiessen and um, Elizabeth Berkley weren't going to come back for any more episodes, so they filmed the, uh, uh, like a mini-season of episodes with this girl, Tori, who was kind of the Jesse Kelly stand-in, and then aired them along with the Jesse Kelly episodes and then the Jesse Kelly graduation. So it was this sort of... I've always maintained that it's actually an alternate Earth. Um, that it's it's the Earth 2 Bayside as opposed to the Earth 1 Bayside. And one day we will have Crisis on Infinite Buildings or something like that. Anyway, if I'm coming like honest about the new kid in town kind of being the point where I realized the show was different or ruined or just being like, oh, I don't know if I want to watch this season. It was the rapid aging, which is another TV trope, like, they call it soap opera rapid aging syndrome, where like all of a sudden a kid is like an infant, an infant, a toddler, a toddler. They're nine years old the next season. And they did this with Chrissy, who was the fourth Seaver kid on the show Growing Pains. 
So Growing Pains, if you didn't watch a lot of television in the 1980s or didn't watch a lot of sitcoms in the 1980s, was a family sitcom. It premiered in 1985. And if I'm going to be honest, it was really ABC's answer to Family Ties. Family Ties was an NBC hit. It was a like it was like kind of one of the defining family sitcoms of the 80s along with the Cosby show uh and then probably Roseanne is probably like right right there up there with them and family ties was hugely popular it would go off the air i think in 89 or 90 um it made a start of Michael J Fox it was um but so to cash in on this a lot of as as a lot of channels and stations did with sitcoms and still do they started cloning it and abc came up with growing pains so this was a show where alan thick played a child psychologist or a psychologist who was working out of home and his wife maggie who was played by joanna kearns had gone back to work and they had three kids they had mike who was kirk cameron uh carol was tracy golden ben who was uh jeremy miller and um and at some point they Joanna Kearns gave birth, so like like I, and they eventually aged her. And I don't know if people have the love and nostalgia for uh, the cast of Growing Pains or the show, The Seavers, which was the family, as much as they do say the Keatons family ties. But it was a solid hit. I mean, it wasn't. It, it ran for several seasons, and it made a teenage heartthrob out of Kirk Cameron. Um, and you know, he he was Mike. He was the screw up. And at some point in, se- in season four. And throughout season three into season four, Joanna Kearns' character got pregnant, and, and then Maggie gave birth to a baby girl. They named her Chrissy, and she would be played by infants and toddlers through seasons four and five. But then in, in the season six premiere, we see Chrissy sitting at the breakfast table, and she's about six or seven years old. And she's played by, I believe the actress's name is Ashley Johnson, who is currently on Blind Spot. I think that's the name of the show, the one with the, the woman who plays Lady Sif. Um, as the with the tattoos and uh, Ashley Johnson also um, I, I looked this up she had a cameo in the Avengers she was the waitress that Captain America saves so that's the girl from that's the 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 added girl the new kid from Growing Pains from back in the early 90s and she's sitting there at six and seven years old making wisecracks and I'm like wait a second I mean I don't think I recoiled at it but I don't think I really watched most of that season it's just season six. And I barely watched season seven, and that was the the season that I think the one notable thing was that uh, added to the cast member was a second new kid in town, a kid named Luke, who was played by Leonardo DiCaprio. I did watch the final episode, though. I do remember sitting down for the final episode because it was one of those shows that I had watched for a very long time, and I was like, you know, and, it was, and they were, you know, they were showing reruns like all the time. And so it's like, well, I want to watch the final episode. Um, and I caught the show in reruns, but I really felt that I was done with it at that point because I was tired of precocious children in sitcoms. I, I already was forced to sit and watch Full House because my sister loved that show. And that show, like, I just really wanted that, the, every character in that show to die in a fire. Anyway... That's the new kid, Chrissy from Growing Pains, my personal new kid. The next one, the next reason that I have for, for jumping the shark that I'm going to profile is called Exit Stage Left. Now, this is uh, the replacement of an actor or a character who is, um, you know, somebody who's leaving the show and then they bring somebody else in. And it's not a, um, 
Darren for Darren, Dick York, like same character, different actor, you know, D- Dick York uh, and Dick Sargent or the two Beckys on Roseanne. Uh, this is an actor leaving the show and they replace, they write out the character, they either kill him off or they just decide to have him, I don't know, get on a boat to go somewhere. And then they replace that character with another character who fills the role but is not the same character and it has different character traits. This is Tiffany Amber Thiessen replacing Shannon Doherty on Beverly Hills 90210. This is Jenny Lee Harrison and then Priscilla Barnes replacing Suzanne Summers' character on Three's Company. For me, though, there is one show I remember more than any and it's actually probably the one show that, if you think about classic sitcoms and, and cast changes and things like that, where it worked because the show went on for several more seasons and was, if not number one in its time slot or the number one show on television, it was in the top five or the top ten. And that is the time, that is when uh, Kirstie Alley replaced Shelley Long on Cheers. Now... I didn't watch this as it happened uh, because it was I was about 10 years old at the time and I still had a bedtime of 8 o'clock. I know that Cheers existed. Uh, my parents watched it. They would talk about it. It got a lot of coverage in TV Guide. And on a quick tangent here, because this anytime I bring up TV Guide, I, I like to just think about TV Guide because I loved TV Guide back in the day. And I probably need to do like a real episode about it. Just like hunt stuff down, look stuff up. Because it's just, I just loved... I just have such nostalgic memories about it and and just fond memories about it. Anyway, uh, Cheers. I would get really into Cheers actually in the early 1990s in its last few seasons. Um, WPIX 11 ran old episodes of the show. Uh, For a while, they did it at 7 o'clock for a long while. They were also doing it, I think, at 11 after the evening news. If I was able to stay up till 11, say it was a Friday night or it was the summer, I would watch the 11 o'clock episode of Cheers. But most of the time, I would watch the 7 o'clock. And then um, NBC aired its 100th episode at one point, and I remember taping that. And it was really interesting to me because uh, it was a clip show, but it was also a panel so you had all these people asking questions and you had John McLaughlin and the McLaughlin group. Remember like Dana Carvey used to play him like, you know, and all that. And the cast was there taking questions like it was like a panel at, at a convention or something, but then they would run all these clips and I watched the shit out of that thing. I had it on tape. It was, it was, that was another cool thing to watch. Anyway, um, it never seemed odd to me that uh, since I came in so late that Kirstie Alley's taking over for Shelley Long was anything like, like a mistake or anything because in my opinion and I don't know I have to rewatch it maybe I'll do a full cheers rewatch the show always stayed that good it was just still a great show in fact I would put cheers in the never jump the shark category but I guess if there are hardcore fans out there who were there from the beginning the Kirstie Alley's casting would be um the show's decline because if you really think about it, the Kirstie Alley years of cheers to those fans may as well be Van Hagar. But then again, I like Van Hagar. But a lot of people spent the early, late 80s and early 90s mourning the loss of David Lee Roth from Van Halen, and a number of people probably spent the same amount of time mourning the loss of Shelley Long from Cheers. 
I wanted to put the by the way, I wanted to put the coin advance years of the Dukes of Hazard or the sorry, the coin advance year. I don't even think it was a full season of the Dukes of Hazard uh, in here, but that was the dis that came about because of a contract dispute and Luke and Bo Duke came back. Um I don't know if that counts then. I do, I will say that the, the other thing I remember, but I don't remember it as fondly as as uh, Rebecca coming on to Cheers. But um, the sort of we're going to swap out an actor and it's really just not going to be the same thing um, is when Johnny Depp left 21 Jump Street and 21 Jump Street had a fifth season that was off of Fox and it went into syndication. They cast another actor and I believe his name was Michael Bendetti and I want to say he played a guy named last name McCann. And um, he was basically like an like. A, a Johnny Depp replacement and it was just a really badly done replacement and I will buy that season on DVD at some point because I have the first four so I want to be a completist and one day maybe I'll do a Jump Street podcast or something or an episode but uh, I just remember the Bendetti year uh, being something where my friends and I would see the reruns and we would see that it's one of those episodes to be like, oh, this is just, oh, God, I can't believe this. So because we were such discerning consumers of television when we were in junior high and high school, let me tell you. Anyway, that is exit stage left. Our third reason for Jumping Shark is what is called They Did It. And yes, I'm talking about sex. There are a lot of comedies that involve and a lot of uh, drama stories that involve sexual tension between the main characters. And it's some of them, there's so much sexual tension between characters that they kind of hinge on it. Like, that's the whole reason to watch the show. And you're like waiting for the moment. Are they ever going to hook up? Are they ever going to hook up? And when they do, the chemistry goes away. Like, really fast. To the point where the show loses its spark. And the classic example of this is a show I actually didn't watch a lot of, but it's Moonlighting with uh, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard. Because they, from what I understand, that show was exactly like that. It was this sort of like back and forth chemistry between and things like that. And then they hook up and then bleh, nothing. Um, I know that a number of people really felt this about Mulder and Scully for the first few years of the X-Files. Like, the tension between them. The fact that, like, oh my god, they're gonna hook up one day. Um, Bradley Whitford and, uh, what was her name? It was Josh and his assistant, the, the woman he worked with, the blonde woman, and, and her name is, um, escaping me, uh, on the West Wing were, were two characters like this. But they, I don't think they ever consummated that or they ever filled that. So it kind of stayed there. Um, but then again, I stopped watching the West Wing after a certain point anyway. But um, some jump the shark commenters would probably say this about Sam and Diane on Cheers. But like I said, I love that show until the end. So I, I would contest that, they, that when they were together, it actually still worked. They still had chemistry. The show I think of, though, on some level is Friends. And Friends kind of did this with Ross and Rachel and Monica and Chandler, but in a, almost like a roundabout way, because the first time Ross and Rachel hooked up, it actually, as a couple, it actually worked out pretty well. Monica and Chandler, to a certain point, after a while, it kind of got really, really tired. And 
the thing that happened was that the focus of the last few seasons went from being the show about just a bunch of 20-somethings or entering their 30-somethings, living in New York and trying to make it through what was the 90s and then just kind of evolving and growing and getting into sitcom situations. When it evolved past that and became all about the shipping among all of these characters, and then they started importing Saved by the Bell's old studio audience, the show became nearly unwatchable. Plus, I know the exact moment when friends jump the shark. Repeat after me. I, Ross. I, Ross. Take thee, Emily. Take thee, Rachel. <laughs> Emily. <laughs> Emily. I mean... Beyond that, I mean, the last few seasons of that show, I barely watched when I did a rewatch of it. So I don't think I'm wrong here. Anyway, another example I'm going to use here might be controversial to comic fans because I'm still a fan of this show. So I guess the jury's out on it. But I think this has kind of happened with The Flash. There is a lot to keep me watching. Um, I'm and, and Brett's been watching season one, and uh, the chemistry between Barry and Iris back in season one seems a lot better than it is within the last couple of seasons. But hey, maybe this is just me, and there are a number of other things that have made the Flash collect dust on my DVR for a few weeks. Anyway, you know, plots that take forever. Barry's constantly screwing things up. And as of my recording this, I haven't gotten to Crisis on Earth X yet. I mean, I'm I'm a few, I'm quite a bit behind. So I don't know if it's changing or improving, but the show is starting to lose me a little. And part of it is just the, the relationship stuff is just, it's it's not there and the, it doesn't have the punch or the pop that it used to. And that's kind of unfortunate. Although, like I said, still enjoy the show. So again, the jury's out. But beyond relationships, there are other reasons for jumping the shark. And moving on, we have, well, we have moving. This is when a show changes its setting to try to breathe new life into it. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work to the point where you're like, oh, well, that's the moment it jumped. Saved by the Bell tangentially deserves this because of the college years, although that's more of a spinoff. The classic, though, example, though, is Laverne and Shirley. Uh, the show started as a comedy about two women living in Milwaukee. And then season six, the ratings were really flagging, so they changed the setting to Southern California. Moreover, we were supposed to believe that everyone, like, in the cast moved with Laverne and Shirley. Like, Lenny and Squiggy literally moved across the country to be next to Laverne and Shirley. I mean, even in reruns, I was never a huge fan of those episodes. And I like Laverne and Shirley. Uh, they always seemed like the show was really starting to show its age at that point. And... Well, I'm sure that they're pretty watchable. The last couple of seasons, especially that final season where Cindy Williams had already left the show and Michael McKean was only on a few episodes because this is like 83 and he was also filming like Spinal Tap, I believe. The show kind of became like Laverne and Squiggy. They're just not as worth preserving as um, the ones that you see like back in its first few seasons. But sitcom, sitcoms do not age well throughout their runs way more than um dramas dramas tend to hold up a little bit better if the storylines can keep up but i will tell you sitcoms that's why i keep mentioning sitcoms on this show and i'm gonna be honest 
sitcoms were my my bread and butter when I was a kid. I watched a few hour-long shows here and there, but if I'm ever going to do kind of a retrospective on various shows the way that uh, Andy does over on the Palace of Glittering Delights, I'm probably going to do various episodes on sitcoms and not hour-long action shows because that was what I was essentially raised on watching all the time. And, and if you ever want to listen to somebody talk about some great shows from the 80s and the 70s action shows, go listen to The Palace of Glittering Delights and listen to Andy. You can listen to me talk about The Next Reason, which is the special guest star. Uh, this has been a staple on television for years. George Reeves had a guest appearance on I Love Lucy all the way back in the 50s, for instance. So it's, it's an old, old trope. But there comes a point where a show relies way too much on the special guest star. Or it has repeated stunt casting. So that not only is there one guest star in one episode, it's somebody playing a recurring character. And uh, Friends did this in the 2000s. Will and Grace overdid this in its last few years of its initial run. And these two are really great examples because they both went into their declines in a way that officially kind of closed the door on NBC's Thursday Night Domination. I mean, after Will and Grace and Friends went off the air, you don't really have much. You have The Office, you have 30 Rock, but they were never on the level of what NBC produced from the mid-80s to the late 90s in terms of their Thursday Night sitcoms. And, you know... The other thing is, and this is this might not be anything regarding guest stars, but and, and I've mentioned this before, NBC would overhype those Thursday shows for uh, in its last few years, like to the point where you wouldn't want to watch them. I mean, their marketing department was just awful. Those commercials, maybe not only just like when Friends, when Friends went off the air, it was like you thought that like the world was ending the way they were advertising this. And like I said, I skipped a lot of those last couple of seasons, um, although the Brad Pitt episode is great. And that's one of the exceptions to the rule when it comes to a special guest star that's like, you know, oh, my God, it's Brad Pitt. I mean, that's a pretty good sitcom get. So moving on here, my penultimate one, my sixth one out of the seven is one that's very familiar to my generation. Uh, it's the very special episode. This is an episode of a television show where the producers decide to tackle a serious topic and have one of the main characters get into these types of situations. For example, there's the time when Doug Emerson Scott was twirling a gun in front of David Silver on 90210 and blew his face off. There's the Saved by the Bell episode, Jesse's Song, which featured the greatest moment in television history. Pills! You mean you really are taking drugs? I need them! Jesse, give me those! I need them, Zach! I have to sing! Jesse! You can't sing tonight! Yes, I can! I'm so excited! I'm so excited! I'm so scared! Jesse, Jesse. Now... Having a character getting addicted to caffeine pills and unable to perform in a Zach Morris-sponsored singing group is one of those episode descriptions that would have the average person going like, wait, what, that was actually a television show? But take away the Saturday morning nonsense, and you have a story about an honors student who is overloaded and reaches a breaking point. And I mean, I've taught those kids. I was a kid like that. 
In fact, there are points in my life now where I feel like Jesse Spano at the end of that episode. But Saved by the Bell, I don't think Saved by the Bell actually had a jump to shark mode because Saved by the Bell was never really that good. It was just a fun show to watch. I mean, and if I'm going to say if there's an episode worse in terms of a PSA episode than the uh, the, the Jesse caffeine pills one, it's that Johnny Dakota marijuana one. Anyway, I'm not using that example as my sort of like, this is what I remember about a very special episode. Because by the time Saved by the Bell was, you know, having Jesse on speed, um, so many other shows were doing it. I'm, fa- I'm, I'm pretty sure Blossom had one about every, just about every week. Uh, but the show, honestly, the show that took the concept of the very special episode and and elevated it to really high art was Different Strokes. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Different Strokes, it is a show about uh, a rich white guy played by Conrad Bain who adopts two black kids from Harlem, played by uh, Willis, who is played by... Uh, uh, Conrad Bain plays Mr. Drummond. Willis plays is played by Todd Bridges. Uh, and then the, the like the star of the show, the cute kid, the one who like had the catchphrase, what you talk about, Willis, was Gary Coleman, who uh, played Arnold. And they had uh, Drummond had a daughter of his own named Kimberly, who was played by the late Dana Plato. And um, later on, he would get married to Dixie Carter's uh, Maggie, and they'd have uh, Sam, who was the little redhead kid, who was the new kid in town for that show. I mean, different strokes ran through like half of these reasons. Um, but let's run down the very special episode, shall we? It's not a comprehensive list, but it's it's pretty close. So we've got the episode where, in order to teach her boyfriend's sister, uh, who was played by Melora Hardin, by the way, um, and who is a bigot, a lesson. Kimberly literally pretends to be black like it's the sitcom version of that Lois Lane issue. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Then there's the episode where Acid Rain turns Kimberly's hair green and it becomes an environmental lesson episode. Uh, There's the one where Willis gets drunk in a drunk driving accident. There's the episode where Arnold finds out that someone is selling drugs at school and we get special guest star Nancy Reagan and her Just Say No campaign. There's the episode where Willis lies about knowing first aid and then has to help Arnold and can help Arnold when it's necessary. Then there's the one where Arnold decides to start smoking so the cool kids will like him. There's the one where Arnold and Kimberly hitchhike and get kidnapped and Kimberly almost gets raped. There's the one where Willis's friend has to deal with being an amputee. There's the one where Arnold is pressured to drink. There's the one where Arnold gets mugged. There's the one where Arnold and Sam learn about epilepsy. There's the two-parter where Sam gets kidnapped. There's the one that Arnold learns that white supremacists have First Amendment rights. There's the one where Kimberly has bulimia. And there's the final episode of the show, which has a lesson about steroid abuse. This is a family sitcom, by the way. But the very special episode that eclipses all very special episodes is a two-part Different Strokes episode that aired in February 1983 called The Bicycle Man. This guest stars Gordon Jump as a bicycle shop owner who befriends Arnold and Dudley, his friend Dudley, but he has the intentions of sexually molesting them. It's a two-parter that's really well-known by people in my generation and probably well-known because... You know, I'm going to be honest, it's actually, at least from my memory of seeing it and then re-seeing it in reruns, it's actually a really good episode than just kind of your typical very special episode. I made a little fun of Jesse's song, 
then you've got like the Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No episode. It's just like talk about like, you know, just kind of cheesy 80s of its time. This doesn't hold up. Um, there's Punky Brewster's Death Fridge episode. But the way that the writers of Different Strokes handle uh, the Bicycle Man is it's hard for me to actually make fun of it. Uh, Gordon Jump, who he he played uh, the man, of course, was the station owner and manager on WKRP in Cincinnati, and then he would go on to play kind of goofy older guys. Uh, he played Maggie's father on Growing Pains. He, he showed up in, in that sort of role for, for a number of years after this. He played Mr. Horton, the bicycle shop owner, is nice, and he has him just be friends with the kids. And the episode takes its time to let the audience know about his being a pedophile because there's nothing creepy about him when everything starts and that's really important and then Arnold at one point toward the end of the second part is smart enough to realize that something's wrong Um, Mr. Horton shows them a pornographic cartoon I'm pretty sure actually it was Fritz the cat but I don't know if I'm remembering that wrong, or they came up with a fake title to sound like Fritz the Cat. And then you have the ending of the episode where Dudley is rescued by the cops right after Mr. Horton had convinced him to take a sedative and then told them they were going to play, I think it was like Atlantis was the name of the game. And it's a I mean, for a kid, it's a scary moment because it's played very straight. There's no schmaltz in the ending. When they find Dudley, he's like terrified. His father's upset. I just, and maybe I'm misremembering this and with nostalgia on, I'd probably have to go back and actually watch the episode. But I just remember that it didn't oversell the moment, which is where a lot of special episodes really get ridiculed. And it's a good, very special episode. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if you if you mention an episode of Different Strokes, it's probably the one people remember the most. But the reason that people would say it, Different Strokes jumped the shark because of the very special episode, it would be because Different Strokes did so many of these. And so it's at least one of the few reasons that the show, which was, you know, for its time, was a pretty good show. It was a pretty popular show eventually jump the shark finally we have an actor who uh john heim referred to as the patron saint of shark jumping and that is ted mcginley ted mcginley is an actor who has had the misfortune of appearing on a number of shows most notably happy days the love boat and dynasty right when they were running out of gas so it's really just coincidence that led to this. Uh, so to say that, like, if you cast Ted McGinley, that's the reason your show's going to start to suck, it's it's not accurate. In fact, Heinemann just it in jest because he said that he's not a bad actor. It's just his casting is always bad timing, and he always had this tendency to show up on shows that were once popular in their last few years. And uh, my experience with Ted McGinley actually comes from a show that is attached to his reputation, which is Married with Children. Uh, Married with Children, of course, being the the family anti-family sitcom starring Ed O'Neill and Katie Segal as Al and Peggy Bundy, and David Faustino as their young son Bud, and Christina Applegate as Kelly Bundy. Oh, God. Um, anyway, and then you had Amanda Burse as uh, Marcy. Now, McGinley actually appeared on the show 
in two different capacities. He is a guest star on one of the show's most memorable episode. It's a two-part Christmas, an hour long, and in syndication, it's a two-part Christmas episode that was a parody of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, Sam Kinison, yeah, the late Sam Kinison, the stand-up comic, played Al's guardian angel. He played the Clarence to Al's um, George Bailey. And so he was going to show Al what life would be like if he was never born. And, of course, the joke is that Peggy is married to Ten McGinley. She's like the perfect. They're all like this. The she and him are like like a perfect sitcom, fifty sitcom family. And Kelly's smart and a virgin, and Bud is like also really smart, and and everything is perfect. And Al decides he wants to go back on living because everybody else is miserable, and he with him there and like he can't bear to have them happy without him so he's just like basically my whole point in life is to make them miserable it it's very much of its time and i've watched it a couple of times since it, it i watched it once recently and um in recent years and it's it doesn't hold up as well as i thought it did but it's still like it, out of married with children episodes which that show is not the best it's still a good episode but that was the first time mcginley appeared in the show but later on after david garrison who played steve rhodes left McKinley would come McGinley would come on to play Jefferson Darcy, um, who was Marcy's new husband. And uh, you know, it actually helped the show for a few reasons, but then uh the show went back into a decline and it eventually did fizzle out and got canceled. But I I wanted to just bring up Ted McGinley just because of the fact that it was just the fact that this one actor was kind of like, you know, that's the reason I always found that funny. And that's going to do it. Sort of. When I get back, I'm going to talk about the one show that I feel fulfills more ways to jump the shark than any other. Stick around. Attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST! Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH! Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Jocularity! Jocularity! Facts of Life was a spinoff of Different Strokes that premiered in 1979 and it ran until 1988. It starred Charlotte Ray as Edna Garrett, who was in the first season of Different Strokes, the housekeeper for the Drummonds. And then she left the family to take a job as the nutritionist for the Eastland School for Girls in upstate New York. 
The show originally had a very large cast, instead of including a young Molly Ringwald, but then it whittled it down to four girls in addition to uh, Charlotte Ray, Edna Garrett. You had Blair, played by Lisa Welchel, Joe, played by Nancy McKeon, Natalie, played by Mindy Cohn, and Tootie, played by Kim Fields. This would be the core of the show until season eight. And by the time the show went off the air in 88, with an episode that was supposed to actually be a backdoor pilot for a spinoff that never happened, it had run through all but two of the seven categories. New Kid in Town? Well, there's Mackenzie Aston as Andy Moffat. There's Sherry Austin as Pippa McKenna. I guess you could also say that George Clooney kind of fulfilled that role, although Clooney was... Clooney before he was Clooney. I mean, it's it's actually charming to watch George Clooney in his Facts of Life and his Roseanne episodes because he's still like Clooney. So, yeah. But anyway, Mackenzie Aston and Sherry Austin. Aston played this wise-ass kid who I think was brought in to actually kind of be a cousin Oliver or Scrappy-Doo. And Pippa was an Australian exchange student who was the cool cool 80s chick brought in because all the girls got way too old and Charlotte Ray had already left the show and replaced by was replaced in it in the last like season and a half or so by Cloris Leachman so there you have an exit stage left which was not really successful that much anyway and I think that had less to do with Leachman and more to do with the show really starting to show its age. I mean, you began that show when those girls were in high school and now they were all like out of college. And plus I'd probably say that by the time Leachman came along, it had probably jumped the shark already and was just trying again to just get back up on that ramp. Um, because it had changed its location. Uh, see in season five, the setting of the show moved from the Eastland school for girls to downtown Peekskill, the town in upstate New York and a gourmet food shop that Mrs. Garrett opened up called Edna's edibles. And there was a house attached to the shop. So that became the new set. Now the Edna's edibles years or two were not bad. Actually. I remember watching them when I was younger and they were pretty good. Uh, the show jumped through several hoops though, to get the girls to live there. But at the beginning of season seven, which I think was about 86, the store got gutted by a fire and was remodeled into a neon vomit 80s novelty store called Over Our Heads. And really, this is the beginning of the end because it's from there you get special guest stars such as El DeBarge. Oh, yeah. In that episode where El DeBarge and they win a singing contest and the girls sing with El DeBarge? And there's the very special episode where Natalie loses her virginity. I think there have been several very special episodes before that. I remember one with a mentally challenged guy. I think there was there was an episode that tied into the Just Say No campaign because I think like a ton of NBC sitcoms did that. Um, a lot of people remember the Natalie losing her virginity episode not because it was Natalie losing her virginity, but because Lisa Welchel is Lisa Welchel who played Blair is not in the episode. Uh, Lisa Welchel is a very uh, is is a self-identified Christian, and because of her beliefs, she said she didn't want to participate, so they wrote her out of that episode for there, so she doesn't appear. Um, and yeah, so that's five out of that. I, I, you know, Ted McGinley was never on the show, and um, there was never really a they did it because I don't think it was just there was no sexual tension with between characters because it was the, the entire cast of the show was girls or women sorry but um 
yeah, and, and maybe I'm being too hard on the facts of life, but, like, if I was just kind of looking over this, and I was like, wow, like, they really hit, like, all of the high points of jumping the shark at one time or another. And, you know, I watched the crap out of that show as a kid. It was on Fox 5 or or, or the, the Fox affiliate in, in New York at 5.30, like, every day for at least a few years. Um, it was it was different strokes at 5 and then the facts of life at 5.30. And then I think the news or something at 6. I don't know what was on at 6 because I had to go eat dinner. But really, when I started compiling this list, I realized the number of times that show was retooled and had something added in order to keep it going. It needed its own little segment on this episode. And that'll do it. As for me, well, Poochie uh, was killed on the way back to his home planet, so I'll be here by myself next month, and I will be taking a look at one of my favorite underrated gems from the 80s, uh, the 1984 space adventure, The Last Starfighter. I'm really pumped for that. So until then, uh, please go to uh, the website, check out some moments if I can find them, check out a link to the Wayback Machines, look at Jump the Shark, go to the Facebook page you, and leave a comment. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's at P-O-P-A-F-F. Please go onto iTunes and leave a review. I could always use the reviews so I can maybe grow the audience for this show and get noticed. But um, thank you, as always, for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.